please take a moment right now to hit like, subscribe, and share. Especially share. That's the big one. film historians. I'm Derek and I love old movies. We've got Sam the sidekick here. Hello and welcome to episode 53, our first episode of September. Man, time flies. Didn't summer just start? Nope. That was ages and episodes ago. Mm. And now summer is basically over, except for maybe some celebration around Labor Day. Long weekend, baby. <laughs> yeah, but then it's back to school for me. To be fair, you were back at school this week with yeah. meetings, preparation, Ugh. and all that stuff. Yeah. But next week, students return. And speaking of students, next week, you start classes at university. Yeah. Don't remind me. Uh, it's going to be great. A bit of an adjustment for us, since we've been driving to school together for, like, ever? Like, every year from JK to grade 12, you drove me to school except for grade 7 when mom did. Wow, the whole commute dynamic is changing. Well, you'll get to school more quickly without having to drop me off. No, more slowly, because now I have to drop mom off. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Speaking of mom. Yes. A big, joyous birthday shout out to Nikki. She does an awful lot for the show and even more for Sam and I outside of the context of the podcast. Family is the best. We're totally happy to wish her the happiest of birthdays. That happened back on August 28th. Yeah, happy birthday, Mom. So today, as promised on our last show, we are going to look at something light and fun and cover a film by a comedy team that... That I have wanted to do for a long time. Yeah. Even before we had a podcast, I wanted to talk about these guys. Fair enough. So, of course, we are talking about the legendary duo of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello and their first true film, Buck Privates. I haven't seen this. I'm pretty excited. So, let's do some business and get on with things. Well, number one... We're really glad you're here. We are. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm. You keep listening. We'll keep making episodes. That's the deal. That's a good deal. Right. And if you're on an audio-only platform right now, please see about dropping us some stars, maybe even a quick review. You'd be surprised how much that sort of thing really helps. And then, hey, what the heck? You know what you could do? You could check us out on the socials. Why not indeed? After all, we are on the Facebook. I Love Old Movies, the podcast. The Instagram. At I Love Old Movies, the podcast. L Twitter. At Ilum Podcast. And the good old-fashioned email. I Love Old Movies, the podcast at gmail.com. All one word. And of course, you should also do what all the cool kids do, and that is Pet the Rock. And by that, we mean head on over to PetRockRadio.ca to listen to amazing local web-based radio programming with fantastic music. And previous episodes of our show broadcast three times a week. Monday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's pretty damn cool. We'll link that for you in the description. So, are you all set to head on down to the recruiting office to sign up and do your bit for flag and country? Hey, you want to keep the peace? You better prepare for war. Hit the music.
Bitten by the acting bug as a youngster, Arthur Lubin headed to New York after university to pursue his dreams of being an actor. By the 1930s, he had gotten into directing and producing plays, and while Hollywood was calling on him, he would have clauses written into contracts that allowed him to return to New York to work on theater productions. He finally signed a contract with Monogram, soon to be merged with Republic, and it was for them that he directed his first feature, a successful failure, in 1934. Working with Republic meant making films quickly and cheaply, and Lubin attracted notice for still being able to make good films under these conditions. He signed with Universal in 1936, making the film Yellowstone right away, before making a series of films with John Wayne. These quickie westerns were shot in six days each, and Lubin was known by then as a director who could stay under budget in terms of cash and time. He made 22 films between 1936 and 1940, mostly for Universal. Nothing was a big hit or a classic, but he had built a solid reputation. Lubin's big break, I guess you would say, came when he was assigned to work on Buck Privates. The film was incredibly successful, although he took no credit, instead feeling that the material that Bud and Lou brought with them made the film a hit. And this led to Lubin directing the next four films the duo made, In the Navy, Hold That Ghost, Keep Him Flying, Ride Him Cowboy, all of which were filmed in 1941. After that, Lubin was seen as one of the most commercially successful directors in Hollywood, and not just a hack that churned out quick cheapies. But after the fifth film, Lubin requested other projects, feeling that Bud and Lou and he were getting stale. By the 1940s, Lubin made some very successful big-budget pictures, including Eagle Squadron, Phantom of the Opera, and Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. But after the massive failure of Night in Paradise, his contract was not renewed. Lubin then purchased the rights to a series of books about a talking mule and returned to Universal to direct a series of films. The Francis films were hits, and Lubin was back on top as a commercially successful director. Along the way, he discovered and signed a young talent named Clint Eastwood, giving him his first role in films. And when the Francis the Talking Mule films had run their course, Lubin turned his sights to television, creating the series Mr. Ed. Clearly, talking barnyard animals were a thing for him. Lubin's last feature film was Rain for a Dusty Summer in 1971, and he settled mostly into retirement. Lubin died in 1995 at the age of 96, but as an interesting or potentially horrifying postscript, there is a possibility that he was actually murdered by serial killer Efren Saldivar. He claimed to have killed over 50 patients in a Glendale, California medical center. This information cannot be confirmed, but Lubin did die in that area and time when Saldivar was operating. It's definitely something one of our true crime podcast colleagues could look into. Probably most known for his work on The Shadow in 1937, When G-Men Step In, 1938, They Asked For It, 1939, and Juvenile Jungle, 1958, American screenwriter Arthur T. Horman got his start in the film industry by creating the story for The Meanest Gal in Town in 1934. He was then signed to RKO, where he worked on his next film, Grand Old Girl, in 1935, and he left the studio the following year. Horman then spent some time with the studio Chesterfield Invincible, where he turned out several films before returning to RKO. In this time, he made many more B-films, including Double Danger in 1938, and eventually started working with Columbia Pictures, 
where he released films such as My Son is a Criminal in 1938. At this time, Harmon moved to Universal, where he began to make better films, and in his first year there, he wrote seven films, including Society Smugglers in 1939. In the early 40s, Harmon also worked on two Abbott and Costello movies, Buck Privates, 1941, and In the Navy in 1941. Continued to have a very active career throughout the 40s, and even co-wrote the Humphrey Bogart film Conflict in 1945. Harmon's career slowed down significantly in the 50s, with only a few films and episodes for a couple TV series, including the Living Christ series and Family Theatre. Ending his 24-year-long career with 65 writing credits, Harmon died in 1964 at the age of 59. The duo known as Abbott and Costello were masters in radio, film, and television. They were so masterful, in fact, that they were the most popular comedy team of the 1940s and 50s, as well as the highest paid entertainers in the world during World War II. That means there's an awful lot here, people, and we can't possibly cover it all. But Abbott and Lou Costello were doing burlesque shows, separately, but often in the same places and on the same bills. And one night in 1935, Bud stepped in and took the place of Lou's regular partner who was out sick. And you could say the magic was born that evening. You wouldn't be too far off. In addition to their in-person shows, Abbott and Costello hit the airwaves in 1938. At the start, due to their voices sounding similar and their rapid-fire repartee, audiences had a hard time differentiating between the two, leading Costello to adopt a higher-pitched childish voice. The iconic Who's On First debuted on the airwaves about a month later. They debuted their own television show, The Abbott and Costello Show, in 1940. The same year, they enjoyed their film debut in a musical titled One Night in the Tropics, where they were cast in supporting roles. Considering that this film included several classic Abbott and Costello sketches, including the on-screen debut of Who's On First, it should be no surprise to hear that they stole the whole show, leading the studio to promptly promote the duo to star status. However, the ridiculous success of Buck Privates, earning more than $4 million on a ticket price of 25 cents, led the studio to delay their second film, a haunted house comedy, so they could release a second service comedy, In the Navy. That film managed to outgross Buck Privates. All four of the comedy duo's films from 1941 were a major success, although the coming years would see their popularity rise and fall multiple times over their 38-year film career. Abbott and Costello continued to appear on television and stayed on the radio even while enjoying their successful movie career, and despite the recurring health issues Costello suffered, he endured several attacks of rheumatic fever which necessitated him taking considerable time away, even at one point spending six months bedridden. Eventually, overexposure of the pair and the rise of another megastar comedy duo, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, led to their decline in popularity, and despite continuing to make two new films per year, it was the reissuing of many of their past works that kept them in the public eye. This was basically a band-aid measure, and after their final film in 1956, the independent movie Dance With Me, Henry, the two went their separate ways. Both men found varying degrees of success on their own, and Lou Costello passed away in 1959 at the age of 52. Abbott attempted a comeback the following year, and despite the new act receiving great reviews, Abbott quit. No one could ever live up to Lou, he said. 
Lest we end on such a depressing note while discussing one of the funniest and most influential comedy duos ever, let's revisit Who's On First for another moment. Absolutely one of the funniest bits ever written, and such an iconic example of the genius that was Abbott and Costello. Who's On First was performed throughout their careers, allegedly never exactly the same way twice, and this was to, to the delight of every audience. In fact, Abbott and Costello and their Who's On First are one of the rare non-baseball personnel who are memorialized in the Baseball Hall of Fame. A plaque and gold record are on permanent display, and visitors can get their fill of the sketch itself as it runs on an endless loop in the exhibit area. Appearing in more films than any other singing group in show business history, Buck Private's co-stars, the most popular female vocal group of the first half of the 20th century, the Andrews Sisters. The Andrews Sisters consisted of three real-life sisters, Laverne, Maxine, and Patty. Patty, the lead singer, was the youngest when they formed their group, at just seven in 1925. She was only 12 when they won first place at a major talent contest in Minneapolis. They began touring in vaudeville, as well as singing with various dance bands and orchestras, before they garnered national attention via their recordings and radio broadcasts in 1937 and were a household name by the 40s. Nicknamed America's wartime sweethearts, the sisters were at the height of their fame just before and during World War II. They had extensive tours where they entertained the troops. In fact, in terms of commitment and touring schedule, the sisters were second only to Bob Hope, and they often had dinner with three lucky servicemen wherever they performed. Riding high on their success as a singing trio, they turned towards the film industry. Buck Privates in 1941 is only their second film, coincidentally also the second film of Abbott and Costello. But it was a massive hit, propelling both the sisters and the duo of Abbott and Costello right into being bona fide movie stars. Buck Privates also saw the introduction of the sisters' biggest song, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, which was nominated for an Oscar. The Andrews sisters saw their popularity wane, However, they managed to have 17 feature films to their credit, and remained active in various ways into the 1990s. The many very public feuds of the sisters enshrined their near-permanent position in the gossip columns right until 1995 when Maxine joined Laverne in Passing On. It would likely take an entire episode to adequately cover the careers of the Andrew sisters. Buck Privates was considered the first service comedy, a genre of film that poked fun at military service in general and the people who signed up for it, or were drafted, in particular. Oh, so like Stripes? Yeah. That would be a much later example? Totally. And if you want a funny fact, the time span between Buck Privates and Stripes is about the same time span between Stripes and today. Facts like that weird me out. Don't do this. Director Lubin did not feel particularly connected to the creative process of the film. Really, he felt that Bud and Lou had all these great, tried-and-true, stage-tested comedy bits that they just ran through. So there was no shooting script, and Lubin just pointed the camera at them. Always two cameras, one on both of them and one on Lou, and let them do their thing. He didn't feel like he was a big contributor to the film's success, but the boys disagreed, and they wanted to work with him again repeatedly. 
And it was a hit, of course. Oh, yeah. It made a ton of bank. In fact, it had made more money than any other Universal film to that point. Audiences found the film quite funny, and the comedy of Abbott and Costello was new and fresh for filmgoers. Ironically, though, while this film was shown extensively to soldiers as recreation during World War II, it was also shown to Japanese soldiers as a propaganda film, showing the incompetence of the U.S. Army. And there was a lot of ad-lib dialogue and blocking, right? Yeah. Since Bud and Lou were just doing their old polished routines, they didn't tend to follow the script, and they just performed it as if they were on stage. The spontaneity and energy and unpredictability of how they did things just led to Lubin sitting back and letting the camera catch as much as he could. Most of the scenes with Bud and Lou doing bits are entirely unscripted and ad-libbed. Okay. And what's the deal with one of the Three Stooges being in this? Okay. So Shemp Howard turns up in Buck Privates in one scene as the base cook. And for his part, Shemp turned up in a lot of films and shorts in various small roles. Promoted as the ugliest man in Hollywood, Shemp actually left the Stooges in 1933 and didn't return until 1946, and in that time he appeared in dozens of films. It's cool to think of this as some amazing comedic team-up between two legendary groups, but the reality is it was just a reliable bit player turning up in a film with some not very well-known film comics. So not exactly an Infinity War level team-up? Nope. Oh well. What's the tail of the tape on this one, Sam? Okay, so we have a 7.0 on IMDb. Okay. The audience score is 77% on Rotten Tomatoes. Hmm. The film won no awards, but was nominated for Academy Awards for Best Original Song and Best Scoring for a Musical Picture. Okay. The film can be found at your local secondhand DVD shop. Street-level hucksters Smitty and Herbie are selling cheap neckties without a permit. This leads them to being chased by a policeman. Thinking they are evading him by ducking into a movie theater, they accidentally wander into an army recruitment center and enlist. At the same center, poor little rich boy Randolph Parker, the third, shows up since he has been drafted. He's a Yale man, you see, and the army is no place for him, so he is hopeful his rich dad will pull some strings and get him out of service. While there, he meets his old valet, Bob Martin, who ironically was the first person drafted in the lottery. He is resentful of his time with Parker and tenders his official resignation, punching his old boss right in the face. Complicating matters between the two men is Judy, an army base hostess, who both men become quite smitten with, giving them even more reason to dislike each other. Army life gets off to a bad start for Smitty and Herbie, who learn that the policeman who chased them, Sergeant Collins, is going to be their drill instructor. And Parker finds out that his dad is leaving him in the army to do him some good, since he's a lazy good-for-nothing playboy. It's not all bad news, though. Both Parker and Martin get closer to Judy. Smitty seems to take to army life and has little hustles going on. Herbie can screw things up endlessly without any real punishments. And the Andrews sisters are there to sing a sweet tune with a dance number every few minutes. Parker shows himself to be the best shot in the company. And when a shooting match with another unit is arranged, Herbie and Smitty arrange for a huge bet using everyone's money. But Parker bails on the contest to spend time with Judy. The company loses the competition and their money, and Parker's name is Mud. 
But redemption comes during the Division War Games, where Parker and Martin team up to pull off a strategy that wins the war game for their team. And at the celebration party, both men learn that they have been recommended for officer's training. Judy will be heading to the officer's school as well as a hostess, keeping the love triangle intact. A huge patriotic music number and swing dance session closes things off as Herbie goes off with Collins, hoping to hustle him at dice. But it doesn't work out that way, as the last shot of the film literally shows us that Herbie lost his pants in the game. The end. That was so much fun. Right? I knew it was going to be. I knew you'd like it. Um, what do you think? Should we prone con this thing? Absolutely. Okay. Well, as always, we don't actually rate films here on the show. There are no stars. There are no thumbs. We just tell you some things we liked. Some things we didn't. And then we recommend whether or not you might enjoy giving this one a watch. Take it away. My pros. Number one, the comedy bits in this film are funny. The craps game, the tie selling, the marching bit, borrowing money. These are all great comedic bits, honed and refined over years of practice, and we get to see them perfectly executed. It's Abbott and Costello at their literal best. Their timing is perfect, their delivery crisp, and their energy high. And when these two do what they are best at, it is utterly timeless. Number two, the supporting characters are well-written, well-performed, and help give the film some meaningful heft. Lee Bowman is Randolph Parker, Jane Frizee is Judy Gray, Alan Curtis is Bob Martin, and Nat Pendleton is Sergeant Collins all do great jobs in this film. Their characters show some depth and motivation and even development. The romantic triangle storyline works. You believe it, and in the context of the film, it helps move things along. Bud and Lou don't really have a story to themselves as much as they are either just struggling or thriving at various parts of the Army experience, but Parker, Martin, and Judy are telling the story that sort of drives the narrative. Number three, the music numbers by the Andrews sisters absolutely slap. They were a top group with good songs written for them, and their performances in this film are a great showcase for their talents. In some ways, this film is as much theirs as it is Bud and Lou's, and they are full value for it. Now my cons. Number one, for a film with such a simplistic plot, you could argue that the runtime is a little long. I feel like the whole Apple Blossom song number could have been cut and not affected anything. It didn't further the plot, it didn't develop the characters, and it only padded the runtime. Number two, more Shemp. Why didn't we get more Shemp? You've got Shemp, for goodness sakes, get him in more than one scene. I feel with a character like the Camp Cook, we could have seen him fit into a few more scenes. You've got a comedy legend in a cool cameo. But just a bit more of him would have been great. Just a bit more shemp. Is that too much to ask? Buck Privates occupies a special place in film history, and not only for being the first starring feature for Abbott and Costello, it is a time capsule from a simpler era, when American patriotism was an unassailable value, when an American institution could be spoofed and it was affectionate, not inflammatory, when stars could be born right on the screen, right before your eyes. It's the sort of movie that you automatically mean when you say, they don't make them like that anymore. Of course they don't. They, they can't. The sort of world that existed in the United States before the Second World War is gone. And I don't just mean the global and domestic politics. I mean the people and the sentiments they had. 
I don't think the top film comedians of today could possibly make a film about the army and end it with a jingoistic and patriotic call to arms without it being viewed very cynically by audiences, critics, and the internet. Buck Privates is a fly, trapped in amber, a perfect relic of a lost time, but every bit as charming and entertaining, if not as relevant as it once was. It's one of Bud and Lou's very best, and they become the dominant cinematic comedy team of the 1940s before they even get their uniforms on. They were just that good right away. Of course it's a watch. Watch it. You're up. Okay, so my pros. One, the music numbers. I wasn't sure if I was going to like them going into it, since I'm not a huge fan of musicals or anything like that. But I actually really enjoyed almost all of the numbers. They were so upbeat and cheerful. They were just a lot of fun. And the Andrews sisters are super talented and great to watch perform. 2. Abbott and Costello. I could watch them do their bits forever. They are always so funny. Their scene on the train with the dice was so good. I could tell exactly where it was going, but the payoff was still so satisfying and great. I love how Abbott and Costello work together and their chemistry when performing. These two have been a longtime favorite of mine, and I always love everything I see them do. 3. The old military stuff. This was actually really cool. During the part where they were doing the big maneuvers and the war games, they included shots with all this older army equipment. There were all those old planes and tanks and artillery. It was really neat looking and pretty interesting to watch. Now my cons. 1. How many music numbers there were. I've already said how much I enjoyed the numbers, but there were just too many for me. I'm not a huge fan of musicals, and I felt like there was a lot of singing in this movie. As much as I liked the numbers, I would have enjoyed it more had there been less of them instead of a new song turning up every couple of scenes. 2. Randolph Parker He was not likable at all throughout the entire movie. He was just a spoiled rich guy who was doing whatever he wanted. And the sort of competition thing with him and Bob to win over Judy just didn't make sense to me. She didn't seem at all interested in him, and yet this was a fairly big part of the plot. Also, one of the reasons Parker has to stay in the army is because his dad thinks it will turn him into a man or something like that. And at first glance, the ending makes it seem like that has sort of happened, since he got over his rivalry with Bob and helped his company win the war games. But he specifically says he does it so he doesn't look bad to Judy. And somehow... It all works out. He's been an unlikable jerk the entire time, does one good thing, and gets back in everybody's good graces. Being in the army taught him nothing. He only did it for the girl. It didn't seem like he grew or learned at all. What was the payoff here? I didn't like this character, and I did not really enjoy watching him in his scenes. And that's it. I only had two cons for this one. I love Abbott and Costello. They are so funny and just so enjoyable to watch. I had never seen this movie before, but I definitely had a great time. If you are a fan of nice, lighthearted, and overall fun movies, 
then you should absolutely give this one a watch. And just like that, as always, we come to the end of another episode. And how could we have had anything but a double watch recommendation for Buck Privates? Films like this are just good old-fashioned fun, still funny today, and deserve to still be enjoyed. And man, did I enjoy this. Yeah, me too. I've seen this film at least a dozen times, and it never gets old for me. I'm always chuckling at the comedy and tapping my toes to the music numbers. Yep, totally. But for now, I guess we should say that we'll be back in two weeks, right? Right. Not quite sure what we're doing yet. We are in negotiations. That is true. Maybe a Hitchcock film. Maybe a live-action Disney adventure. Or maybe a John Wayne Western. It should be all three. But it will be just one. But which one? If you have a preference out there in the listen-verse, let us know. But until then, be sure to watch more movies. And let everyone know about us. We're not a secret. You don't have to keep us all to yourselves. So tell your friends. Tell your enemies. You never know. They might like bopping to war-era swing tunes as much as you do. Maybe even more. For Sam the Sidekick, I'm Derek, and I love old movies. Additional research for I Love Old Movies, the podcast, is done by Nikki Weatherden. Audio clips come from prefx.co.uk. Images are used through the provisions of fair use, and our theme song, Burning Bridges, is by The Crocs.